evening is the same as last week. So we're in 1 John chapter 2. It's on page 1226. And if you are seeing maps, you've gone too far. So 1 John chapter 2, starting at verse 28. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we will know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have hope, all who have this hope in him, purify themselves just as he is pure. Thanks, Tom. Um, I'm going to invite uh, Glyn up to the front now. Um, it's great to have you back with us. Welcome back to Buffar Church. Thank um, you, for those who weren't here last week, are you able just to briefly introduce yourself in a couple of sentences? Well, hi, hello, everybody. It's, uh, it's great to be um, back. Thank you for having me back. It's always a bit of a relief when, when they have <laughs> you back for a second week. Um, and um, uh, I, I, I introduced myself last week, and I, I, I think most were here then. So I'm a, um, a retired psychiatrist. I was an academic psychiatrist in um, Bristol University. And uh, since retiring, I've, I've loved uh, being given the time to talk more and think more about the interface between what we learn about psychology ourselves from the world of psychology and more important what we learn about ourselves and even more important than that about God from the Bible so I, I love sharing some of these sort of ideas doing some writing and getting alongside people so and I'm here with Louise who thankfully drove me here tonight and may drive me back great lovely uh, can I pray for you um, before you get going thank you Heavenly Father, thank you that you have uh, yeah, brought Glenn and Louise safely to us uh, here this evening. I thank you for your words. I thank you uh, that it is powerful. I thank you that it is good news. And I pray that you yes. would speak through it and speak through Glenn um, to our hearts and our minds. And I pray that you would be transforming us to be more like Jesus. Amen. 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 Thank you, um, Nicola. Well, <clears throat> Uh, we did most of the Bible work on this brief passage last week, and as I promised this week, we're going on to some more of the application that arises out of what we learned together last week. But just by way of very brief recap, you'll remember that this brief excerpt from John's letter is taken actually from a circular letter that the Apostle John sent out to the churches under his care, much of which lay in what we'd call Turkey today. And we chose that brief excerpt as we're thinking about this issue of uh, identity together because in just a few words here, the Apostle takes us to the source and the summit of our identity in Christ. 
That is that we are children of God. This is the truth that John believes in his letter will bring ballast to our souls. And uh, we, we, we say, well, it doesn't look like that. And he, he actually goes on to say, well, of course, it, it doesn't look like that. And, and they didn't recognize Jesus, so they're not going to recognize you as anything particularly different either. But it may not look like that. But that is what we are, he says, verse 3, 1 of chapter 3, that we should be called children of God. Well, as I promised tonight, we do some more of the thinking about how we use this truth about our identity in Christ to live distinctively in the cultural waters in which we swim. And in our title for this mini-series, I've called these cultural waters a culture of self-invention, haven't I? Now, what do I mean by that? Well, a personal identity, remember, is the concept we hold of ourselves. It's never been easy to build that concept. It's never been easy to answer that big question of life, has it? Who am I? Who am I, really? But today's culture says, well, it's certainly not about being a child of God. It's not about that. Um, you know, that isn't the cloak the loving father's wrapping around his son, prodigal son's uh, shoulders just now. It's a straitjacket. And uh, they want to tie him down and get him back in with all of the rules and the obligations and the religion and the do this and do that and the conformity which crushes the human spirit. That's what that's about. It's not a cloak. It's a straitjacket. It's not a loving father. He's a patriarch. No, no, we've escaped from all that. Thank you. And you can be anything you choose to be. That's the good news of our culture. You can invent, reinvent yourself as many times as you like, which sounds attractive, doesn't it? So how should we live in this culture that has such a powerful message? Well, we're going to do two things in this talk tonight. First, we're going to say, how do we get here? Very briefly, I mean, there's lots we could say about that, but very briefly, what are the main strands in, in the history of ideas as they've evolved these past two, three hundred years that got us to where we are today? We didn't get here by accident. We got here because big ideas were unfolding into culture and finding their way into our subconscious and into our collective minds. So how do we get here first? Then second, if today's culture of self-invention turns out to be the problem rather than the solution, how does John's teaching here really help us to live distinctively in that culture? It's our second task. So first, how do we get here? Well, look, think about it like this, and we touched on it last time. In the past, you built this concept, you built your identity, this concept of yourself, mainly from three sources, three sources of the self. You looked outwards 
to your situation, to your cultural context. You know, your, 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 your situation, your background, your, your family. And you, you'd have said something like, as I said last week, hi, I'm, you know, my name's John Farmer. Our family have lived here and farmed the land for generations. We look outwards, you see. But then second, people did look inwards then. We just didn't start looking inwards yesterday. They've been looking inwards Centuries, we looked inwards in search of our strengths, passions, desires. If there's one thing that makes me a farmer, John says, it's my passion for farming. And then third, we looked upwards, outwards, inwards, upwards, to, for transcendent sources of personal meaning, for something that would frame all of this in something more secure, objective, some ballast and foundation to our lives from beyond ourselves. Transcendent world. World of God. His word. You should see how we do harvest in our family, John says. It's bigger than Christmas for us, harvest. Because, because for us, our, our whole lives unfold under the watchful eye of our creator. And so to bring what he, his gifts back to him in thanks, you see, anchors us in the transcendent from whom we derive our whole sense of being in the world. And that is what the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, who's very fashionable at the moment, calls the poorer self. The poorer self. A self open to the world, a self open to the transcendent, weaving together information from these different sources and fundamentally to the transcendent, the porous identity. Today, though, something's changed, hasn't it? What, what seems to be happening when we say, I identify as is that, is that regardless of those, those outward realities that may have shaped my life, what I inherit and, and what's gone before, regardless of any kind of supposed transcendent up there who makes some claim on me, I get to tell my story in any way I want. Don't you tell me who I am, I get to say what makes me, me. Not what's out there, certainly not what's up there. It's all about what's in here. We've become what Charles Taylor goes on to call buffered selves. We've gone from poorer selves to being buffered selves. A self cut off, defended, barriered against our situation and the transcendent, a self buffered against all that might threaten its sovereign autonomy. And in its most extreme iterations, a self that says if reality doesn't line with, align with what I assert, it's reality that needs to change and not me. So how do we get here? How do we get from porous to buffered, you see? Well, of course, to do the job properly, we'd, 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 
we'd be here a long, long time. Uh, we'd need to acknowledge the influence of philosophers such as Jean-Jacques Rousseau or um, Karl Marx, Sartre, Michael Foucault, and so on. But the one thinker, just one philosopher, I want us to focus on for just a few minutes is the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. Now, we'll put a slide up in just a moment. Friedrich Nietzsche, the son of a, a 19th century German Lutheran pastor, uh, mid-19th century he was born, born with a huge intellect, huge intellect, but a rather odd personality. You might know somebody like that as well, but indeed, Nietzsche spent the last decade of his life in a, in a psychiatric institution. But after rejecting his parents' religion, his dad was a pastor. He threw that all out as a late teenager. He went on eventually to become one of the great atheistic philosophers of the mid-19th century. Let's look at that first slide. God is dead, he says, and we have killed him. It's his most famous phrase. God is dead. We killed him. But here's the thing. Here's what you need to get about Nietzsche. It wasn't his atheism that, that actually makes him important. There were loads of atheistic philosophers. It was quite fashionable to be an atheistic philosopher at that time. Feuerbach and people like that. No, no, that wasn't what marked out Nietzsche and makes him important for us today. What makes him stand out is that he understood that you can't get rid of God and hung, hold on to the values which rest on him for their validity and their authority. You can't say there's no God, but there's still such a thing as truth. You see, there's no God, Nietzsche argued. There are no objective values. If there's no God, there's no court of appeal to which you can go when you have a different view to someone else and say, which one of us is right? What's the truth here? There's no foundation, he argued, for differentiating between what one person says, well, this is my truth, and someone else says, well, I'm afraid this is my truth. And that's the way it is. No, no. Nietzsche said, no absolutes in a world where there's no God, no objective truth. There are simply different ideas in people's minds. And the ideas that make it to the top are simply the ideas that belong to the people who wield the power. When you've killed God, he said, next slide, that's all there is, power. What did he say? The world itself is the will to power, the will to power, and nothing else. And of course, the Nazis went on to make that one of their great motivating, driving philosophies, the power of the will. And each himself was hated anti-Semitism. It would be unfair to say that you draw a direct line from Nietzsche, the Nazis, by way of parenthesis. But nevertheless, they took these ideas, the will to power. It's all about power. 
And so turning to the individual, Nietzsche asked, so, so what, what are you then is if all you do in life is submit yourself to other people's power over you, to, to whoever happens to wield power in your life? You're nothing. Your ideas don't count for anything. You, to be a something, to live a significant life, he said, you've got to rise up and will your own power. You be you. Heard that one? Let's have the next slide. This is his last. You should become the person you are. Friends, that was all over a century and a half ago. We finished with the slides. Thank you. But across the Western world, Nietzsche is on our streets today, isn't he? He's everywhere on our streets. You be you. You be you. Exert your own power. Don't tell me who I am. I get to decide who I am. And if reality doesn't line up, it's reality that changes, not me. And even if my body doesn't line up with what I feel about myself, it's my body needs to change, not my feelings. And if you don't line up, with what I feel myself to be, then you need to change and we will cancel you. I am my own experiment, Madonna sings. I am my own work of art. What not to like. So as we survey this world of the buffered self today, here's the $64,000 question. Does it work? Is it any good? After nearly half a century over which this philosophy has come to, to dominate our, our, our culture, is our mental health improving? Relationships more stable and rewarding? Children growing up with a, a sense of inner poise, confident youngsters eager to go out and make something the world confident in who they are? with ballast in their souls and a sense of mission and purpose. It's not what defines our, how are we doing? Well, there are plausible reasons I, I suggest to believe this philosophy today does more harm than good. And I want to just highlight a, just let me highlight a couple of them here. More harm than good. First, there's what I call the the common sense argument, all right? Look inside yourself. You be you, we're told. Well, when did you last do that? When I look inside myself, sure, I see some real strengths. I think I'm really good at some things, and I own those strengths. And I see some gifts and some real achievements. And I don't pretend it wasn't me. It was me who did them. And I'm, I'm pleased with some of the stuff I've done in the strength of the Lord. And I think those are good things that are part of who I am. But I see a dark side too. I detect a remarkable capacity in my soul for self-deception mechanisms which protect me from the truth about myself. And I see some things that have their root in hell. And so do you. When you look inside yourself, 
So yes, of course, look everybody, we need self-acceptance. That, that's the gospel. The, the gospel itself is God takes us as we are, just as I am. We've been singing that for decades, just as I am. That's our gospel, not theirs. Just as I am, accept all that's there. Embrace the reality of what you are, but the question that's left unanswered in today's culture all the time is, well, but then what do I do with what I find? It's the question that doesn't get the answer. You know, I I sold my car about um, uh, three and a half years ago now, an old 10 years old car um, uh, that, was, that was on its last legs. And I took it along because a, a website that's, ans- that, that's advertised a great deal promised me loads of cash for it. So I thought, wow. So I went along and of course a man, a young chap appears with a clipboard and goes around and notices this scratch, that's 500 pound off and that dent, that's another 500 pound off. And you, you think you're going in for a large check and you come away with a much, much smaller one. So be warned. Anyway, I was waiting for my much smaller check to, to come my way, and let's call him Alfredo, who was sitting uh, at the computer tapping away. And, um, uh, and so I, I, we got talking. I said, what, um, uh, what brought you to London? He'd, he'd mentioned that he'd, he'd come here a couple of years ago. And um, he said, oh, I, I don't know, I wanted to come to the, the UK. Um, He'd come from another part of Europe, obviously, and he said, um, I, I can work with my brother partly. He gave me a job initially. Uh, he'd been here a bit longer, and it was nice to see him. I said, yeah, but is that really why, why you came? What, what brought you to, what, what are you looking for when, when you came here? I'd just be interested to know. And he said, I don't know. And he put his pen down, or his computer down for a moment. He said, well, I suppose I, suppose I came to find myself be honest and I said but what if when you found yourself you don't like what you see and he said have you got time for a coffee <laughs> you got time for a could you be you it's a phrase that lifts us up in expectation doesn't it Find yourself, but then leaves you dangling in the wind. What am I going to do? Now I found it, you know? The buffered self, cut off from the transcendent, consigned to a treadmill of endless self-making. It's a treadmill that goes on round and round and round because you're never good enough. You're never good enough. So that's the common sense argument. But then let's look at the evidence that's accumulated from half a century of self-esteem research. We recognize, rightly, that having a sense of basic worth is important for our well-being. Correlates with some good mental health indicators across a raft of measures. But the evidence now pretty conclusively shows that simply telling people to boost their worth 
by telling themselves how important they are and special they are and how lovable they are and how like a magnet they attract people to themselves when they go. Just telling yourself this stuff all the times. Redefining your personal worth doesn't in fact strengthen our self-worth. It weakens it. It turns us into ego addicts, not knowing when to or how to stop the boosting because you never know when you've done enough boosting. Indeed, it turns out people trying to boost their self-worth simply by asserting it become less secure, less confident. And, and if you want to hear a bit more about the psychological evidence for that, um, ask me a question about it in Q&A. But if attempts to redefine the worth of the self by simple assertion have failed so badly, it seems reasonable to suppose that attempts to redefine the substance of the self, the nature of yourself, without reference to any reality in which you're embedded, is also going to fail. By, by analogy to self-esteem, you see, endless self-invention is producing weaker, less stable versions of ourselves than the stronger, more stable versions we were hoping for. Could this be why, especially on university campus, students sometimes appear so fragile and in need of protection? Could this be could this be why we've witnessed the demand for safe spaces? The buffered self, you see, appears so easily wounded and offended and brittle. And it mustn't be harmed and it must be protected. It's a weakened version of ourselves, not stronger. My central point here, everybody, is, is that the mantras of the buffered self, you just need to look inside yourself, or you be you, or you be whatever you want to be, paradoxically produce hollowed out, weakened selves on an endless treadmill of self-invention that just keeps on going round and round. So everybody, it's time for us to be bold. It's time for us to be bold as Christians. It's time to stand up for what we believe, to, to punch holes in the buffered self, to regain our confidence in in calling people to look up again. For, for as many as received him, they too can be called children of God and find ballast for their, for their souls and embracing our identity as children of God. Let's learn to, let's, we learn to flourish as we live in harmony with the security of that and the design that God has built in to our souls. Which brings us back to our passage, 1 John 3, this evening. For, for we Christians, our identity isn't rooted in our achievements or our status. It's not discovered or searched from deep within. 
It is made, it is given by the Spirit of the living God who has sired us, fathered us to be, to belong to a people for himself. Verse 1, that is what you are, child of God. Well, what does that look like as we move to our conclusion? Well, of course, it looks like all kinds of things, and that too would be here a a long time, but let me pick two of them. First, we need to know deeply that, that he, his father, is the father ideally we'd, we all long to have. I know some of us here, you've got a great dad. You can't think of any dad better, really, but there really is. He's the father deeply we'd all long to have. And I know some of you, he, he did, the one you had didn't seem to know how to encourage you, did he? You had him boasting about you to some people, and you think, why can't you tell me that? Why can't you ever? I was talking to someone just three days ago. Never believe preachers, by the way, when they say, I was talking to someone yesterday. It's a story they've told a dozen times. They <laughs> often it means five years ago, but it never sounds so good as if you say, I was talking to somebody five years ago, so it has to be three days ago. But this actually was three days ago. And he was telling me, my father didn't, he didn't seem wired to know how to say, that's good, son. Well done. Keep going. There's more to come. Well, he's the father you wished you had. He's the father against which you were comparing your own subconsciously at that point. He's the father you you want and now you have. Others of us, you not even had a, you don't remember having a father. But you so wish you had. He is the father you long for. He's here for you. Never leave you. And you are accepted here in his family. And then second, and it kind of grows out of that, we are called as his children to cooperate with him in his mission to rebuild his, the image of his son in us, Jesus. That's the goal. It's there, verse two, do you see it? What we will be has not yet been made known, says John. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. So we are called to cooperate with that great mission of God in our souls, to rebuild his image in us. Once again, to see the beauty, the glory of his own son reflected back from us. And that's what Basically, what John says there in verse 3, and all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. It means that we bring all of our self-understanding, all of our loves, our wants, our desires into alignment with 
his mission in us. We purify ourselves in line with who we are called to be. Now, purify can sometimes mean that, that you, we have the idea of we, we, we're getting rid of stuff and therefore getting smaller. No, no, something that's 100% pure gold is 100% pure gold. To be pure is to be 100% the real thing. And he's saying, now, let's call our loves, our desires, our wants, a whole understanding of ourselves. Let's order ourselves toward God's mission in us, which is to be the children of God, to become like him. And people out there say, there you go. He's, he's on about the straitjacket again, guys. Warning, health warning. No, no. It, it, it's a springboard, I suggest to you, verse 3, to true authenticity. Now, what do I mean? Well, well look, suppose you look inside yourself and uh, you, you find a passion there for playing the guitar. A real passion. Passion. I don't mean a bit of strumming. I, I mean the real thing. You, you've, got a, you've got a Keith Richard or a Jimmy Page or a, a, an Eric Clapton possibly in there. So what do you do? Just pick up a guitar and start playing? You know, well, there are very rare instances of that, but the vast majority of great maestros in this or any other area are people who flog themselves to near death, learning how to play that thing, how to be that person. You've got to learn the rules. You've got to learn the rules to play the guitar. It's the rules that eventually set you free into that guitar riff to play from the heart. Maybe you're, maybe you're a runner. Maybe you have the ambition to be a serious athlete. Um, so do you just be you? You say, hey, you be you. You're a runner, start running. Do you start just running and hope that for, the, for the best? No, 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 not if you're a serious runner. I know a little chap who's, who, who's got all the makings of being a serious runner in, my, in our family. And uh, we were at uh, church uh, in, in Nairobi, and, uh, and we met uh, somebody there. We were chatting. I said, what do you do? And my wife said, what do you do? And he said, uh, he said um, I'm a professional athlete. That's very interesting. He said, no, I've, I've run for, for Kenya, and I, I, I represent Kenya. I, I have the championship of the... Uh, 400 meters, I think it was something like that. And so, how interesting. And let's call this little chap George. I said, George, just come over. Come over here. Meet this man, you see. And I said, um, and do you do any coaching? He said, oh, yeah. And now this little chap is connected with this coach. Now, what does the coach say to him? Hey, be yourself. Let's just see you do it. Go for it. There's no rules here, no right or wrong. You just let it. Of course he doesn't. He says it starts off at twice a week. And then you need in between to be doing lots of running. And we're going to work hard. And we're going to be learning the rules of how to run well. 
posture, timing. We're going to be doing the psychology of running, focus, the start, discipline. And you're going to need to work at it and work at it and work at it. Now, purify yourself sounds as if it's rules. It is about rules. It is about discipline. It is about getting ourselves sorted out in line with God's mission. But this isn't to confine us in a space. It's to set us free. To set us free to be truly all that God calls us to be. Because you see, we learn the rules, we learn the techniques of godliness, and then God sends us out into his world. And he says, now, bearing my image, make something of the world which I give you, and make it your unique work. That's the glory of the gospel. That's why we need to be bold. That's why we've got a message here, everybody. What we've been given is for the life of the world. It needs to start with our hearts again. And it needs to start by a boldness in the confidence, uh, in the culture in, in which we live. You know, one, about, yeah, 198 AD, I finish with this, a little group of, of uh, Christians were led out before the Roman consul in Carthage. His name was uh, um, Saturninus. He was quite a fair man, but, but he was to go down in history a bit like Pilate went down unknowing. He was to go down in history as the first persecutor of Christians in Africa. And these little group of martyrs, there were t well, the little group of people, there were 12 of them. They're, they're called the Sillerton Martyrs because they came from a place called Scylla in Numibia. They're the first African martyrs. And Saturnize, he's a practical man. He says, look, all you've got to do is bow the knee to Caesar Order your lives towards Caesar. You keep your religion, just keep it to yourself. But order your lives towards Caesar, and then we all go home. And one or two of them said various things. Um, and then a woman called Secunda stepped forward. And she said, I am a Christian. I must be what I am. And Saturninus sent them off 30 days to think about it before they'd be brought back. What do you think they thought about? What do you think Secunda's mum, if she had one, said? Would she have wanted it? Come on. You need to, there must be some compromise here. What do you think? Does she have kids? husband and she came back after 30 days and they cut her to pieces with a sword and friends we, we stand on the, on the shoulders of giants who've gone before who brought the scriptures to us who passed the word of life 
to us. And suddenly we're living in fear of a culture in case they come after us. Heads down, guys. Now it's our turn. It's our turn to say, I am a Christian. I understand a little more of that. What that means, a child of God. That's who I am. And now I must be what I am in this world and submit to the God who wants to make everything of my life a true freedom. Are you up for that? Are you up for that? Because that's the calling on us tonight. Let's pray a moment and, and then we'll stop for, Christian, for questions. Thank you so much for listening. Our Lord God, we bless you and thank you. You're indeed God. We're creatures. We rise up from the dust for a season. And then we fall back into the dust from which we came. Unless your hand reaches into our lives and says, mine. Thank you, Lord, that that is the offer. That is the possibility. And that is the reality for so many of us tonight. And we want to say we're sorry where we forgot and diluted what this meant. We want to thank you, Lord, for Secunda, for Sparatus, for the other 10 that made up that little band of 12. Because like so many that have gone before us, they were willing to be who they are. Help us in today's culture to remember the good news that you've built into our souls. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Glim, um, some really challenging stuff there. If anyone wants to dig a little, little deeper into some of the things which Glenn has been talking about, there are some books uh, uh, on sale in the books outside uh, in the lounge. Please speak to one of the First Impressions team members and they can uh, help you with that. We're now going to have a bit of a Q&A. There is the QR code on the screen if there are any further questions. Um, to cover any immediate questions that people have, uh, we might not be able to go through them all, so if you don't have your questions answered, uh, please do get in contact with the pastoral team uh, and hopefully they can help with some of those questions. The email will come up in a bit. Um, oops. We'll start with the first one. I'm hoping it can go on the screen. There we go. Um, someone has said, I don't quite understand. Surely it's good to be me, as in you be you idea, because that's who God has made me, rather than trying to be someone else. Yeah, that was great clarificatory question, thank you. Um, I, I tried to, to, to acknowledge that, um, actually th this is the, the gospel, you, you be, you acknowledge, accept, embrace the reality of, of who, who you are, of course. Um, but, and, and God does that, doesn't he? He accepts us in Christ. He accepts us as we are in Christ, the, 
dark bits as well as the light bits. But, but then, and this is the gospel, he doesn't leave us as we are. So the UBU, the first bit, embrace the reality, sure, that's right. We've been saying that for two millennia. Face up to the full reality of who you are, the dark side as well as the light. But, but here's what the gospel is. God doesn't leave you where you are, but takes you on a, a different journey altogether. And so my contention with today's culture is the second bit. The, it, 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 it rises you up, but then it, it leaves you dangling in the wind. Great, thank you. Uh, we'll go to the next one. Uh, there we go. Uh, the German uh, philosopher you referred to says it's all about power. How do we account for when the church has used its power to oppress people that do not conform to their traditional form of identity? Brilliant question again, thank you. Um, because um, sadly for us, the Lord insists on packing the church out with sinners, people like you and me. And we're all works in progress. The reason we're here talking about this is because we're revisiting these ideas. We open our, ourselves up and we submit to God and we say, Lord, work in our souls. But it's a work in progress. We're not there. There's work, so much work to be done in, in our souls. And so, um, you know that... Uh, the other reason I, I, I think here is, is I, I'm always a bit surprised when we're, we're surprised at this because it's exactly what Jesus warned us about. He said, um, wolves wearing sheep's clothing, beware. There'll always be people among you who are not what they seem and who use the power that church gives. And this platform is a powerful place. I've been exerting power. You submitted to listening to my words tonight, so you should be just thinking, who's looking out for that guy? Who, who, is there anybody that he gives account to? Is there anybody just keeping an eye on him? Is, does, does he meet up with at least one and hopefully more than one, two people who are speaking into his life and just helping him stay within God's calling and not his own ego? I hope so. That's what you should be thinking about every pastor. Every pastor, nobody is above accountability and oversight. And I just want to reassure you, I do have two people and that is a really big value for me because I know my own heart, it needs to be shepherded. And, and so don't let anybody get too big up here. That is a responsibility for us all. We all need to be under oversight of one sort or another. Um, and I think it's to our shame that we've allowed these things to happen you know, one of, one of the, one of the um, sayings you often hear, we must make sure this sort of thing never happens again. And the only, the only way we'll, we'll, this sort of things will never happen again is when Jesus comes again. That's when everything's put right. You can never make sure that these things never happen again, but you can do everything in your power to mitigate that. And, and I think that's a task that we all share together. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, having accountability for leadership, and I'm glad to hear you've got people as well. Um, the next question, um, put it on screen. 
uh, how have we arrived at the point where there are Bible-believing children of God within the Western church who identify as gay, which many other Christians believe is not a true Christian identity? Yeah, another great question. Thank you. I'm going to, if you don't mind, duck that one, though. Um, Not because there isn't lots to say about it, but because there's lots to say about it. And we'd be here a, a, a long time. And to be honest with you, I, I think there are so many people who are better qualified to speak on this than I. I have spoken a lot about it in the past, but there are people, it, it's far better if someone speaks from their own story um, uh, in this area. And there are loads of wonderful uh, Christians around who've, who've done that, um, true freedom, trust, who you may have heard of. Um, Jonathan, you worked for True Freedom Trust, I think, for a while, didn't you? Um, My old pastor from Bristol, Ed Shaw, was same-sex attracted uh, and would would identify as someone who has a same-sex attraction, uh, but who seeks to live by the the pattern of, of, of life set out in scripture, that sex is for marriage between a man and, and a woman. So, you know, the, that is a big question that, that requires a longer answer. I think it's going to be looked at in the next couple of talks. Yeah. Is that right? Yes, I believe so. I'm not sure what we can get in some nods. Yeah. But so so yeah, that, that's coming, and, and there are people far better than I, equipped than I am. That. Thank you. Thank you. So keep coming back each week. Uh, our next question is... Uh, how, how do you balance finding our identity as a child of God with the fact that God has created us with unique personalities, gifts, etc.? Well, um, I've got three kids, I was going to say. <laughs> They're hardly kids. But, but I, we have three children. I tell you, they are unique personalities. And I, I think almost any parent here will tell you that it is stunning the way that DNA can combine Uh, with the power of what's called epigenetics and the different experiences that children have and the way that shapes us. But it is is extraordinary how unique each one of those is. And it it works in just the same way. This is the magic of the gospel, actually. This is the the, the paradox of the gospel. The more you become like Jesus, the more unique you are yourself as well because each of us has been called to make our unique contribution to God's kingdom there's a con- there's, he has work for you to do that only you can do and, and that only, it'll only get done when you do it the, the uniqueness of God's calling is as unique as that um, and God loves to see his children doing those unique things but the magic of the gospel is that in that, he sees the beauty of his own son as well as we reflect more of his image in our character and in our bearing. So I think that's the answer to that. Thank you. Uh, someone has asked for, um, oh, no, that's the wrong one, uh, for more psychological ev- evidence against the against self-esteem boasting, as you promised. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Que- that's a very good question. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Well, now, ever so briefly, that, that there's, one, there's quite a few studies now, and if you're interested, I cite them. I read a book a few years ago called uh, Ego Trip, or The Big Ego Trip, um, 
And in that, I, I've got a chapter on this, but I'd cite psychologists such as uh, uh, Jennifer Crocker, um, but particularly Joanna Wood uh, at the University of Ontario, Canada. Um, she did a nice randomized trial, uh, Joanna Wood. Uh, and what she did was she created two, she randomized her subjects to two groups. The first group got a bunch of these self-affirming statements, like, I am a lovable person, you see. You've got to meditate on this. You've got to absorb it. You've got to, I am a lovable person. Boost yourself with it. And the other group got nothing at all. And she did some baseline studies, and then she followed them up at three and six months. Published this study in 2008. Uh, and then she followed them up, and without knowing which group they'd, they'd been in, she assessed the mental states in all kinds of ways. And uh, the interesting thing is she found that this boosting doesn't work at all. It, people weren't coming out of it with a better sense of well-being, their mental health improved, less anxiety, less depression, more confidence. None, none of those things moved at all. But here's what's interesting. The people in the group with the, that got the boosting, I am a lovable person. And, and the task they had was they had to spend 20 minutes every day meditating on these different cards of self-boosting statements that, that they were given. The interesting thing is the people who went into that group at the beginning who, who scored as having a low sense of self-worth, at the end of doing these self-boosting meditations for weeks on end, they felt worse about themselves, not better. That's why I say these things can do more harm than good. They felt worse. In fact, Joanna Wood says, I think I can remember the quote, she says, these, these self-affirming statements, this American, North, North American kind of booster self confidence that it seems to work for people who already feel pretty good about themselves so if you're somebody maybe like Donald Trump you come out of this card using these cards feeling even better you see but but if you're someone who's who's struggling you feel vulnerable she said they backfire for the people who need them most why because it's just your own propaganda that's why you're a buffered self you're settling for just what you find within side yourself. No, no, no. Re look up. Let God reach in to your life and bring his sense of significance and ballast to the soul that we belong to him. That is the basis on which all else rests. And then we go out and we, we strive to achieve. And you'll notice I, I've said own your achievement. If you're good at something, say I'm good at Own it. Doesn't make you more important than anybody else, though. Say that as well. I may be a fantastic runner, but it doesn't make me a better husband. I may be a, a genius at maths, but they should see what I get up to at home in secret when I'm by myself. I'm, I, I, I may get a round of applause at the end of a brilliant lecture I do. It doesn't make me more important than the person I step over who's begging in the street outside. Why? Because our deepest level of significance comes from our being loved by God and given significance by him. And then that is the foundation from which we go out 
to achieve and to own our achievements. If you're good at something, you're good at it. Feel God's pleasure in it. You did it. You don't then have to base your sense of worth in your achievement. If you do that, what happens when you get ill? What happens when you retire? What happens when other people overtake you? It's the boom or bust ego that. Don't do that. Reach, let God establish your significance. And then from that sense of worth, go out and make something of the world and own it. I don't like this. Oh, it wasn't me. It was the Lord business, you know? You've heard the joke about the chap plays the piano for the service a bit like keyboard here. Someone goes up to him afterwards and says, thank you so much. That was just phenomenal. It just lifted the service, the way you play. The guy says, oh, no, it wasn't me. It was the Lord. And, and the guy says, uh, the Lord? No, it wasn't that good. <laughs> I mean, the Lord played it. I mean, who got that wrong note then? Well, um, he said, well, I played the wrong note, of course. What kind of a father takes all the glory to himself for the right notes and leaves you with the wrong notes? That is a perverse view of God. No, no, this is a father who delights in his children. And, 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 and um, Eric Little, you know, as, as he's said to have said in, in, in the film, Chariots of Fire, when I run, I feel his pleasure. Why? Because he's running. He's got the coach. He's been following the self-discipline, building up the habits, and that God loves to see that in his children. Just don't think it makes you any more important than anybody else. It doesn't. But it does leave you blessed by the Father who, who loves us. Amazing. Short Thank answer. You. Long answer to a short <laughs> question. Yeah, good Sorry. answer. I think we've probably run out of time for questions. Um, but, yeah. Um, we're mindful there are more questions, um, and we recognise that we are covering big topics in this series. So, and, um, and can I just say, yeah, just just for you, um, that I, I'm I'm conscious as well that I'm I'm going to have to fly away. I'm so sorry because I've got to get back to London uh, at the end. But um, I know I've I've mentioned some one or two things tonight that that have bumped up against the whole trans issue as well. You know, this this we change reality about ourselves, our bodies rather than our feelings. I just want to say I do that um, not, 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 I do it out of love. And I think it's, it's important that we have a posture toward this whole issue of love. But we also need to be clear thinking that good intentions doesn't mean that there aren't bad ideas. And we've got to separate out the good intentions from the bad ideas and the ideologies at play in our culture. And, um, I, and so let's, let's get our posture right, because I know you've got this coming up. Let's get our, our posture is one of love. It's one of a, a readiness to recognize other people's good intentions. Very often it's people, they don't want to see the little people who don't fit pushed out. Well, neither do we. That's our gospel. You're, you're, you're welcome here, whoever you are, wherever you come from. That's our gospel. We're not going to give that away, but we are, we are going to keep our heads clear because good intentions don't guarantee that you haven't got bad ideas. And I belong to a, a profession, and I'm very proud of being a psychiatrist, but boy, have we foisted some bad ideas 
on people over the years. So just because someone tells you all the latest science, we lobotomized, you know, thousands of people in the name of the latest science. Don't let, us let that happen again today. Good intentions, but bad ideas. And I'm so pleased that you're gonna be talking about that topic. Andrew Bunt, I think, is coming in about three weeks' time. And do come and, and hear uh, Andrew uh, there. And Preston Sprinkle's book, Embodied, is possibly on the bookstore, but if not, do get it. It's the best book around, in my view, Embodied, Transgender Identities, the Bible and the Church, it's called. Wonderful name, you can't forget it, Preston Sprinkle.